team. That line in that song, um, it, it means a lot to me. Um, Mercy triumphs over judgment, James tells us. And there was a point in my walk with Christ where that line was really a line that I just hung on to and clung to, knowing that mercy triumphs over judgment. God is good. That was pretty weak. God is good, and all the time, he is. Amen. So, November the 20th was the last time that uh, I preached on the Sermon on the Mount. We got into Advent season and uh, looked at different texts during and, and uh, focuses during that Advent season. And then last week, we celebrated our 14th anniversary, and our 14th anniversary passage uh, has been uh, at least for 14 years, and maybe 15 uh, when we get to next January. First uh, Peter, uh, the first chapter, verses 1 through 9. And so we are moving back to Matthew's gospel. If you have your Bibles and want to put your finger there, we're in, still in chapter 5. Uh, you know me, I, I go through text pretty methodically, and uh, so we have covered the Beatitudes. We, on November 20th, uh, got through verse 12, and so it uh, took us three months to get there, but that's okay. And um, Jesus talked to us, preached to us, preached to those on the mountainside, and ultimately the scripture that he has given us, he is telling us the character of a Christian, how we should live. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. And we are to rejoice, and that's hard to do when you're being persecuted. But he says, you will be glad because your reward is there for you in heaven. Thank you, Jesus. So, having conveyed the Christian character that we are to live into in this world, he now begins to share how we carry out that how we live into the characteristics that he has given us in the Beatitudes. And, and he clearly tells us what the relationship should be um, and how we have this relationship with the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones states that he believes that there is an error in how the monastic life was carried out, how it was taught, because he says we were not meant to separate ourselves from one another. We were not meant to be in isolation. And you remember 2020, 2021, as many stayed in isolation, and how so many were affected by being isolated away from others. He says this, that Scripture denies, or he says that, the, this lifestyle is denied everywhere in Scripture, the monastic lifestyle, and especially in the verses that we're fixing to cover. We're told to live in relationship in the world. And why? It's because of God's purpose and his plan for us as believers. 
So if you have your Bibles and want to turn uh, Matthew 5, I'll be reading verses 13 through 16. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt has become tasteless, how can it be salty again? Is there no longer good, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor can anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you have done in giving us your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, for you are our strength. In our Redeemer. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. And so Jesus, in this sermon, as he moves from the Beatitudes, he uses two elements. The first is salt. He says, you are the salt of the earth. What does that mean? And then he says, if you're the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how then can it season? How can it be of use? And he says, you would throw it out and just trample on it. It's of no value, of no good. Salt represents our influence, as Jesus is teaching, our influence in a world in the way that it ought to be. In ancient times, we see that salt was necessary. It had value. It had worth. It was a seasoning. It was a preservative. And it was considered one of the most prized minerals, prized possessions. Salt was used as money, as compensation to to pay someone. Isn't that interesting that it was used in that manner? In fact, the English word salary is derived from the Latin word salarium. And it refers to the payment that a Roman soldier would, would get as they were given salt. And that's where that term, worth your salt, came from. And so today, I'm not sure that we think about salt very much, unless you've got high blood pressure or you're eating. Now, some of you, and I know there's a couple in this room because I watched them on Wednesday night, some of you, before you even taste my food, grab the salt shaker. And start salting before you even taste. Salt is good. It flavors. But back in the day of Jesus, as he is teaching and preaching here on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, people really paid attention to salt itself because it was a commodity that they depended on. It was something that they understood. When the disciples would hear Jesus talk about salt, how valued they were, how prized they were in relationship, they understood 
the value of salt and that Jesus was making that comparison of who they were and who they were to be in the world. So I want us to look for a few minutes at this particular element that Jesus brings up and relates it to us as believers of how we live out our life in this world. And then we'll get to the second one. But first, salt creates thirst. Have you ever noticed that? You can, especially if something is really salty, um, you, you thirst for water. And so when it comes to us in the world, Jesus is saying, look, our life, our testimony, our witness, how we live in the world should make a difference to others in the fact that they would look at us and say, I want what Joan has. I want what Janice has. I want what Ryan has. They see us in our, our life and how we relate in the world when, as Jesus says, persecutions are going to come, when those things happen, when we get that bad report from the doctor, or when something's going wrong in our family, or when we've lost our job, whatever may happen. When people see how we handle that, they thirst after how can you live that way? Why are you different than anyone else that we see going through these particular things. But do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said to the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, he said, whoever drinks from the water that I shall give them shall never thirst. And so our witness should be something that people would long after, and we're able to tell them that what I have in Jesus is everlasting. It's everlasting. Jesus told her that the water that I give will well up inside of you like a fountain and you will never thirst again. And so Jesus is saying that we are the salt of the earth and, and our witness, how we live, how people see us live in the world should be such that they thirst after us. Salt is also a seasoning. As I said, often we will grab that salt shaker on the table and we will begin to pour it out on our food because it's seasoning. Uh, many of you, I would guess, um, watch some of the cooking shows in our house. We watch uh, many of those cooking shows. And often the judges that um, are, are, are grading the cooks Often they will say, oh, you used too little salt. Oh, you didn't use enough salt. You should have salted it more. Or you salted it too much and, and it just tastes awful because we know, again, you can over-salt something and it's almost like you want to spit it out of your mouth. But we see that salt makes a difference. It's a substance that makes a difference. It's interesting to me that many places in Scripture talk about salt, but Job 6.6, 6. did you know that Job talked about salt? Here's what Job says. Can flavorless, flavorless food be eaten without salt? He asked the question. So salt is a seasoning, and a seasoning in such that we bring the gospel message into conversations 
Have you ever looked for an opening in a conversation that you're having with someone where God is telling you, hey, you really do need to witness to this person or this group of people about who Christ is to you, and, and you look for that opening to cease season, seize the opportunity to season the conversation for Christ. I tell you at the end of the service almost every week, look for those opportunities that God gives you this week to be his hands, his feet, his mouth in a lost world. And that is how we season, is seasoning the gospel message in our conversations. Salt is also used in sacrifice. Leviticus 2.13 says, And every offering of your grain, offering that you shall season with salt, you shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your offering. With your offering, you shall salt. Three times in this text, God tells the Israelites they are to salt and even has this word covenant of salt. And so we are to live righteously so that, so that our sacrifice of ourself for Christ would be pleasing. Romans 1, 12.1 reads this way, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And often we stop there. We don't read the rest of that verse. We don't listen to what the rest of that verse that Paul gives us in Romans says. So I want to read it again. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice. So Leviticus has already said, God has said, you know, bring your sacrifice salty, seasoned with salt, holy and acceptable. That's where I stopped. But the verse finishes this way. Which is your reasonable service. In other words, Paul is saying, this is your reasonable service to God. This is how you live out your service, your sacrifice in the world. That you would be salt to the world. Salt in your sacrifice. This covenant of sacrifice or this covenant of salt that... Um, we have in Leviticus reminds us of our covenant relationship with God. On Wednesday night, as I mentioned, we're uh, studying biblical covenants. And so this past week, I did an uh, a introduction and talked about what a covenant was and how uh, our covenant with God, but there's also covenant relationships uh, with each other that we have. We see that in scripture. You go to 1 Samuel 23 and we see the word covenant made with David and with Jonathan, this covenant relationship. And you got to think about that because he is, who's his father? Saul. And so Jonathan knows that Saul is after David. But yet he makes a relationship with David says, I'm going to be there for you. In 1 Kings 5, we see that Solomon is going to build the temple, and, and he, he needs those resources. And he goes to, uh, to Haram, the king of Tyre, and he says, I want your cedar, and, and I want your cypress. And, and he gets excited about it. And they make covenant. 
to build God's temple. We have this covenant relationship to, to be with one another, to, to do what the Lord is calling us to. And so when we sacrifice our lives daily for Christ, when we have that salt in the world, we are carrying this gospel message out to our brothers and sisters who God has called us to. God has called us to be a living sacrifice, to worship him in such a way that others will see our witness. This, um, this past week, uh, Emma, we were driving uh, into town uh, to Southern Pines, and she was telling me about um, one of the papers that she has to do for theology, and they're having to um, write different papers, and she's writing on human worship. And she was asking me some questions, and so we were going over scriptural uh, um, addresses that would support some of her premises that she's making. And, and I was thinking about how over and over again we are called to be in relationship with God to worship, and we are to worship him. But how we worship is a testament to others that see our worship, because worship happens here, but it should happen out there also. How we worship should be evident to the world. So our lives are to be a sacrifice. And then salt preserves. As Jesus was t teaching and as he was talking about salt, certainly those fishermen that were there were thinking, yes, I know what salt does. We use salt, we go fishing, and we get all of this catch, and we uh, pack it in salt so that it won't uh, decay or spoil so that we can take it to market. They knew that it was important for survival. It was important for their livelihood. Salt was a preservative so that things would not spoil. They didn't have refrigerators in that day, so they used salt. We need to remember as we live out our life as a Christian that we are to preserve, preserve the gospel. We are to preserve this message that Christ has laid upon us to carry into the world. We are not to allow Satan, the prince of this world, to spoil it, to bring about decay, moral decay, we're to remember to share this truth that God has given us in love. So interestingly, as Jesus says in that first verse of this passage, you are the salt of the earth, he reminds us, he reminds us that if salt loses its flavor or saltiness, it's really not good for anything. The problem with that is salt is an element that is sodium chloride, and it's a stable compound. So what is Jesus talking about, losing its saltiness? Well, again, those sitting on the mountainside that day on the Sermon on the Mount, they would hear this and they would understand what Jesus is talking about. Because much of the salt came from the Dead Sea, and as those who would collect that and sell it for a livelihood, they had to be careful. Because, you see, they would gather up at the Dead Sea different minerals sometimes that contaminated the salt that they gathered. And when they did... Those elements in with the salt made it worthless, 
Nobody wanted to buy it. Nobody wanted any of it. And so they would know what Jesus is talking about. If anything is mixed in with the salt, it makes it worthless. And you have to be careful. He is reminding us that there's an influence of we have in the world. And as, as the world looks at us, if, if we are connect, contaminated with the world's, with Satan's efforts, we look no different than the world. George Barner said this. It's an interesting statement. And I quote, The average Christian... And those of you that don't know who George Barner is, he's a, a Christian research uh, firm that just does wonderful job with, with research, with the church and, and Christianity. And so he says, and I quote, the average Christian in the average church is almost indistinguishable from the rest of society. The fundamental moral and ethical difference that Christ can make is missing. When our teens in the church claim to be saved but live in promiscuity or do drugs at the same rate as teenagers outside the church, when the marriages of Christians end in divorce at the same rate as the rest of society, when Christians cheat in business, lie or steal, cheat on their spouses at the same statistical level as those who are not Christians. Something is horribly wrong, Barner says. Is it any wonder that someone looks at the church, looks at us and, and says, why would I want to be a part of that? You don't look any different or act any different or say anything is any different than, than anyone else. Jesus is saying, we're the salt of the earth, and we are to have influence in the world in which we live. We are to help preserve people for the kingdom of God. He says, salt does no good if it stays in the shaker. It doesn't do any good. The church is not a warehouse for salt. It's supposed to dispense salt. Shaking you and me out into the world to help others, to influence the world, to make a difference in the world. And in most cases, I would say, or you could change that, in many cases, the world doesn't see any difference. We're no longer salty. And if we're no longer salty, we probably are no different than Lot's wife who turned into what? A pillar of salt. And basically was no good. Christ calls us to be the season to carry out and sacrifice his message to a lost world. When we become unsalted through ignoring the beatitudes which we've gone through and not pursuing godly attributes for ourselves as we live out this life, this Christian life in Christ, we're not preserving the message that Christ has called us to purvey to the world. Losing our saltiness makes us ineffective in our witness. Losing our saltiness loses our value, our worth. 
In fact, as Jesus would say here, we're no better than should be thrown out and trampled by men. Losing our saltiness is like when Jesus cursed the fig tree because it was not bearing any fruit. Jesus warns us and tells us, alerts us, that we have a great responsibility. He has called us to be used by him for his plan. How awesome is that? That he would call you and me to carry out this gospel message and use us. And know it's not pleasant at times. Salt hurts when it gets in a wound. And sometimes we dispense salt to a lost world or someone that is lost. And it hurts and they react in that hurt towards us. Sometimes very unfavorably. But Christ has warned us. He's forewarned us that this can happen. But it doesn't change what we're to do. We're to live in this world. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. He wants us not to let our saltiness be taken in deceit and sin and fear and apathy. Instead, he wants us to share our salvation, to carry the message out, to be diligent and be in the salt of the world. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. And we folks need to live into that. But he doesn't stop there. He brings in another element. He says, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill. And it cannot be hidden. Nor does the light of a lamp be, it's not put under a bushel but it's on a lampstand, so it gives light in the house. Let your light show shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so while salt represents our influence, light represents our testimony of Jesus to the world. And before we look at just a couple of things that light can do, we need to see what our source of light is. The source of light that shines in us is Jesus. Jesus described himself in John 8.12. One of the I am statements. There's seven of them in John. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness. But have the light of life. The apostle John in talking about light with Jesus and life in John 1 4 says in him was life and the life was the light of men in John three nineteen, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil but then John in his first epistle he says this in verse chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him. And who is him? Jesus. And announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so our source of light comes from Jesus. 
the very Spirit who lives in us. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, and we are to reflect as followers the light of Christ to the world. In the same way the moon reflects the light of the sun, Christians are to reflect light, the light of God through Jesus Christ. Those who follow Jesus actually become reflectors. Have you ever noticed this? I'm sure you have. Um, you go out in the night and you see all of the stars and the moon is up and it's just beautiful moon. Um, and then the next night you go out and you can't see the moon. It's a cloudy night and it's covered. Is the moon still shining? Shake your heads, yes. It's still shining. You just can't see it. But it's still shining. The moon is still reflecting the light from the sun. And we have to reflect the light of Christ constantly. There are going to be times when people that we want to witness to, to share our testimony, are clouded and they just don't want to hear it. They don't want to see the light of Christ. But our light continues to shine. In fact, it should be constant as we reflect the light of Christ. First Peter, the second chapter, we covered the first chapter last week, uh, those nine verses. Second chapter, verse nine, says this. But you were chosen, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That's who we are that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you, what? Out of darkness, out of darkness, into his marvelous light. That's who we are. We're to walk in the light. Ephesians 5, 8, For you were once in darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Walk as children of of light. We're to walk as children of light. We are to reflect the light of Christ to the world. So what does light do? We talked about what salt does in, in thirsting and seasoning and sacrifice and preserving. What does light do? Light exposes. Light exposes. When you bring a light into the room, it illuminates that room. Darkness is expelled as soon as light comes in. So does our life, the life of people who bring light into darkness. I love this passage, and I know I'm sharing a lot of passages. Probably should have put those addresses on the screen for you, but those of you that take notes can write those down. I love this passage. A few weeks ago, Lori read it as our call to worship. It's Isaiah 60. It's the first three verses. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall overcome the earth, and the deep darkness his people. But the Lord, and I love that, but the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be, will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to the light, and the kings to the brightness of your shining in other words, we as believers in Christ, our light is to shine. And as we live out our light, as we let our light shine in this dark world, we are the brightness of the message of the gospel. And so it exposes darkness. Light also guides. 
Now, if, if Rich, if I, I brought him up here, he could tell you how to land a 747 at night. But my guess is part of that would be such that there are lights at the end of the runway that you have to kind of level and get because you know where you're coming in. And there's lights along the runway so that he can see how to land that 747. If all of those lights go out, I'm sure there's a way to land that thing, but I'm not sure he really wants to. I think he would probably rather have the lights in place uh, to land it. Lights guide. It's the same thing with our cars. How many of you have had, I had a car, it was in 1979, it was a 19, 1970 LTD Ford that I bought for $300 if that tells you anything I was in the Air Force look I didn't have any money I was driving from Fayetteville to Tabor City and I was about halfway and the lights go out I'd pull over to the side of the road and the lights would come on I'd start driving again I'd put it in drive something I guess in the steering or something so every time I'd put it in drive the lights would go off every time I'd put it in park or reverse the lights would come on have you ever tried to drive about 50 miles in the dark it's not fun good thing was I knew where I was going and I didn't run in the ditch but light guides us and, and we're to guide people uh, God has called us to be this light that guides people. And what do we use? Yes, we use the Holy Spirit, but Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. We use his word to help us to guide others out of darkness into his light. Our light should be such that it attracts people. But I want you to hear this if you don't hear anything else I say this morning. Our light shines not that people will be attracted to us. Our light shines so that people will be attracted to Jesus. It's not about us. It's about him. So what happens when our light fails? When light is removed, there's darkness. But Jesus gives us this understanding in this text. He says, there's a city on a hill, and you see that city. I love, I love that statement. We should be a city on a hill that others could see. He says, you know, a lamp is put on a lampstand. You don't hide it under a bushel. And, and I thought about singing the little song, This Little Light of Mine, but I'd probably get it off key and mess it up, so I'm just not going to do it. Um, but that light tells that song tells us not to hide that light under a bushel. You can't see it. Um, but Jesus reminds us that our light is to be such. It, it benefits the world when others can see our light. Our mission is to be Jesus, His light. To a dark world. There was a kid that um, he had been given a, a toy for Christmas. He had stuck it in his toy box, and so he decided that he wanted to uh, see if it would work. And he went to the toy box, and it was one of those glow-in-the-dark toys. And he took it, and he ran outside, and and it didn't light up. He was shaking, and it wouldn't light up. So he went in, and mom, this toy doesn't work. And his mom said, 
bring it over into the light so that we can read the directions and, and see if we are doing something wrong. And so the kid brought his glow-in-the-dark toy over to his mom, and she read the instructions. And the instructions read this way. If you want me to shine in the night, then keep me in the light. Do you know how glow-in-the-dark toys work? They absorb the light so that they will glow in the dark. And that's the way we should be. We should absorb the light of Christ. We should absorb that so that others can see our light in the darkness. Because if we aren't in the word, if we aren't praying, if we aren't connected to Jesus continually, that light seems to kind of dim and we go out into the dark world and no one will see our light. And I will tell you, and you know this, our city is dark. Raleigh's a dark city. Wherever you live is a dark time, a dark place. And the question that we have to continually ask ourselves, is our light shining? Are we moving the light into this dark world. Mariners used lighthouses. If you go into my office, I'm a lighthouse nut. In fact, for my birthday Friday, Emma and Terry gave me a bird feeder that's a lighthouse, and so it's on, on the deck with bird feed in it. Um, I love lighthouses. And um, those lighthouses help to bring mariners in in a dark world with that light that just beams out. How's your light? And we'll close with just this story and then we'll pray and finish up. A woman went to a past to her pastor. She was uh, a Christian lady, very strong in her faith, and she was contemplating quitting her job. And so she she just wanted to run this through. Am I thinking correctly? Uh, you know. This is a, a, a huge decision, and so she went into the office uh, to meet with her pastor, and she said, the people where I work are so bad. They, they behave so badly. There's not a Christian in the entire place where I work. And the pastor looked at her and said, if you had a candle, where would you put it? She, not really listening to what he had said, said, but they, they lie and cheat. They, they treat me badly. And he looked at her and he said, if you had a candle, where would you put it? But, but pastor, you don't understand. These are ungodly people. They tell profane jokes. They take the Lord's name in vain. I have to hear that every day that I'm in the office. And the pastor put his hand up and he said, Please answer my question. If you had a candle, where would you put it? And just aspirated at the, all that she had said and he was saying and asking this question, she just said, well, I guess you'd put it somewhere where it's dark. 
and her light went on. And she went back to work. True story. Six months later, two people in the office had come to the Lord by her witness. We are to be sought in light. The truth is this. No God, no light, no sight. Or, no God, no light, and no sight. Choice is yours. The question is going to be whether you will be sought and light. Will you let your light shine and your saltiness preserve? I will tell you, that's the expectation that God has on us as believers. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage that reminds us that you want to use us. You want to use us as part of your plan to carry out the message of the gospel to a lost world. How precious, how awesome is that? And I pray, Father, that we would, in our own minds, our own hearts, Father, look at how we are being sought and light in a lost world. I pray, Father, that you would use us and guide us, help us to share truth in love. Help us to be a light that reflects Jesus to a lost world. I thank you, Father. Thank you for the opportunity that we have as believers, followers of Jesus, to be light and salt in the world. Thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.